Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The book of Psalms has been the praise and prayer book of the people of God for thousands of years. Our Psalms mini-series dives into a few noteworthy Psalms which teach us how to pray through the difficult seasons of life. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. Now here's this week's message. So we are looking at Psalm 139, and a brief few moments we will get there, but uh, we're going to do a little bit of introductory comments beforehand. In 2022, there was a UK study that, that looked at uh, adults and the lives of doubt that they might live. And they found that adults live with doubt and think about doubt and have doubtful thoughts up to six times a day. It's where they're thinking through themselves, I'm not the right person for this job. I just can't get that project done good enough. I really don't think I can fix that relationship. I don't think I'm going to get any better. I don't think I deserve any good friends, these doubtful thoughts might say. And so this report showed us that 25% of people experience self-doubt. 23% of people are second-guessing the very choices they have made in life. And 34% of people are concerned that they will actually not be able to achieve any of the personal or professional goals that they have in their life. And as a pastor of congregational care amongst you, I know that these numbers, I'm going to say they're shy. I have heard of extreme doubts and extreme worries and extreme cares uh, more often than these percentages tell us. And so it's not an understatement to suggest that we all have experienced some level of doubt at some point in our lives. The report revealed to us uh, there's, there's these top 10 doubts that we experience in our lives, which can be summed up in three different areas. We have doubts when it comes to our personal confidence that says, I'm just not good enough. I'm just plain old not good enough. We have doubts in our social standing that maybe suggests that we have doubts that we're good enough to even become friends with someone. We have doubts in our professional lives that make us think that we just can't complete our jobs well enough. We're not the right person for those jobs or we just can't finish those tasks in a good enough manner. And as I went through those top 10 doubts, that was identified is, is that it placed an incredibly high and even a ridiculous level of expectation that we've placed on ourselves. And so we can talk for hours about those expectations that we've placed on ourselves and why and how those moments have ever come to be, whether it's following uh, news feeds on our social, social programs or, or uh, paying attention to current events or maybe even peering over into the backyards of our neighbors to see what's there and what's not in ours. But as I think about this, I realize that we're measuring ourselves with the wrong measuring stick. We hold ourselves up and compare ourselves to others all too quickly. And we evaluate if we're good enough, if we have enough, if we're doing the right things, if I make enough, if our relationships are the right ones just by observing someone else or by observing a whole host of someone else's. And we put aside all too quickly if we don't even know, maybe at the beginning, that the only measuring stick that we ought to use in our life is the one that the Lord uses to measure us. And I'll remind you ahead of all the things that we're going to explore today, is that when God the Father sees us, God the Father doesn't see our imperfections. He doesn't see our failures. And he doesn't see our limitations. When he sees us, he sees his perfected son who stood in the gap of our sinful nature 
He spread out his arms. He said, I love you. And he took upon himself the torment of being separated from God the Father on our behalf. That's what the Lord sees. And so when we experience doubt in our lives, it's not because of what God has or hasn't done in our lives, but because of our own past failures, our own past disappointments that we keep still hanging on to. And like the grudges that we bear, from the hurts that we've experienced in our lives, we treat our doubts with a similar attitude. We feed our grudges while we feed our doubts. We nurture our grudges while we nurture our doubts. And we hold them up and we hold on to them as, 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 as we don't want to let them go at times. As they become a part of us and they become a little, if not a large part of who we are. But when we realize God's design for us, this is just not to be the case. So I want to remember here even the moment of Jesus' baptism. I know that we're talking about Jesus here and he's the perfect son of God. Yeah, I, I get that. But I love what God responds. So in this Matthew 3 passage, Jesus has just been baptized. He's come up out of the water. John the Baptist is assisting him. And a dove comes and lands on Jesus' head. And a booming voice comes from above. And it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I love reading those words. Because in the same context, we read in John chapter 1 verse 12 these things. But ahead of that, we recognize that Jesus up until this point of his, in his baptism, he's only been raised as a Jewish boy. He only started as a carpenter to support his family. He's done nothing else in a ministry context, and yet God the Father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Same breath, we read John chapter 1, verse 12. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become also children of God. And I love reading that as well because I get the same picture that as God the Father looks at his son, he looks at me and he's pleased. And he looks at all of you and he is pleased. He's pleased with his creation. He's pleased with looking at you and as he delights with you and that he, you look like him to this world. And that makes him happy. And that makes him glorified when we go and do those things. But that doesn't mean that you and I, because of that, we're flawless. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. We still have some rough edges and we still have very much sinful lives, don't we? And I think all of that is what maybe David had in mind as he was reading and writing Psalm 139. He's plagued with some doubts, plagued with some realities, but also had this firm understanding of who God was and who God is in his life. So read with me Psalm 139. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for, for me. It is so high, I cannot attain it. Well, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. 
For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you for I am fearfully and am wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it full well. My frame was not hidden from you because I was, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet as it were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand, and I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I, not, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. So we're talking today about praying through our doubts. Praying through those things that just plague us, that worry us, that concern us, that give us all kinds of fear in our hearts and in our minds. And it's good of us to do those things, to give those prayers over to the Lord and to acknowledge him to him just exactly how we feel. Remember last week we were talking about that Psalm 88 where Pastor Eric led us through talking through and praying through our despair. Well, we need to give word to those feelings and let the Lord know. And those are good things for us to do. But know that when we do that, we need to know that God knows the real you. That God knows the real you. So I want you to take notice as to how David even starts off this psalm. The direction of his language. He writes, you know, you discern, you search, you are acquainted, you know it. These are all active terms, and they're currently in David's world exactly what the Lord is up to in his life. And I want you to think about David's life for a moment. Now, we're not particularly too sure where Psalm 139 was written in the matter of David's life. But what we do know about David was he was a young little boy, the youngest of many brothers. He was the shepherd of the family. Uh, he wasn't really anything special in amongst his family. And, uh, but the Lord saw he was a pretty great guy. And so he had Samuel come and anoint him to be king over Israel, the next king of over Israel. And as his life continued to go from there, uh, he, he moved into the palace alongside King Saul. King Saul was less than enthralled about that whole idea because that meant that King Saul, is, uh, his lineage wasn't going to pass through and become the next king of Israel, but that some other poor shepherd from a distant land was going to move in to learn how to do his job. Not a great picture for Saul. Saul, I'm sure, was less than impressed and made David's life difficult. But David didn't measure himself up against Saul. David, as we read in this particular psalm, is seeking out, God, what is it that you think of me? God, what is it that you say about me? And so there's this cool technique that David is using as he writes this particular psalm. It's a Hebrew poetry device called merism. It's a technique that is used to pair together two contrasting words or phrases to express totality and to express completeness. Merism. How many of you have heard that word before? Thanks, Jason, because Jason helped me understand that this week, too. He's got his hand high. I learned it this week. Anyways, how we use merism currently in our world now, I used it just the other day. I've looked high and low for my keys. I've looked high and low for my keys. So my family and I, we just went camping a couple weeks ago, and the day before we went camping, I was packed up the truck, packed up the tent trailer, and went to go lock up the garage, and I did that whole pocket check, and my keys weren't there. Well, I went through the house. I looked high and low through my entire house, went to the truck, went to the garage, went everywhere 
looking for my keys, and I found them there in the bottom of the basement somewhere. But I searched high and low. I searched everywhere for them. David employs the same technique as he writes, You know when I sit and when I rise up, you search out my paths and my lying down. You hem me in behind and before. All this to say that David understands that God knows his entire set of activities. From his rest to his movement and from his movement to his rest and everywhere in between, God is acquainted with all his ways. He writes, you are acquainted with all my ways. And this word all, it strikes me. This is a word that Pastor Justin would say, circle, highlight, and underlined. It's a special word in this context. There are times in our lives where I think we define as specific moments for God, where we carve out this moment is for God, this moment is for God, this moment is for God. I think about our lives and, and how we live, uh, post-dinner devotions with our family, that moment's for God. Uh, gathering times with your life group or your youth group, that, that moment's for God. And I arrive to church and I arrive to that moment and I enter into it. Bible class at school, these times that we gathered right here for church, that we carve out and we say, God, this one's yours. This hour is yours, God. As if to say that the other 23 hours weren't important. But pause for a moment and thinking about this word all. What is God doing in those other 23 hours that we're not in church? Is, he, is God watching Netflix? Is he playing Minecraft? Is he paying attention to the, the people on the other side of the world? Or is he out washing his car or pulling weeds out of his garden? When we're praying through our doubts, know that God is closer than you think. God is closer than you think. God's not watching Netflix. He's not playing Minecraft. He's on the other side of the world, but he's also very much right here. I don't think he's washing his car or pulling weeds in his garden because in his world, you know, those things don't happen. Birds don't poop on cards and weeds don't grow in his garden. It's perfect. And so David opens up verse 7 with these words. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? This is, this is a rhetorical question that drives us to think for a moment. And to not just answer flippantly, nowhere. Because, we, well, we know that's the answer, but David wants us to think a little bit further about what this means. He wants us to think about the omnipresence of our God. And so he helps us do that, and he paints a picture. In the heavens, he is there. In the depths, in Sheol, in the grave, you are there. When the sun rises, you are there. When the seas come to an end, you are there, he writes. So about 500 years ago, sorry, I'm going to get a little nerdy on you, I think. Um, about 500 years ago, in 1543, mathematician and astronomer Copernicus figured out that the earth revolves around the sun, as opposed to the sun revolving around the earth, as opposed to what David saw when he was alive some 3,000 years ago. His picture of the universe was a little bit different. It looked like this. As the Old Testament people and the people living back then, this is how they viewed what uh, the earth looked like. It was just a simple mass of land with the sky, sun, moon, and stars somehow stuck in this entrapment. There is all these waters around. There's the ocean and the seas. There's Sheol below. Sheol being also uh, translated in our NIV context as the grave or the depths. And David saw that the heavens existed. He saw all these things played out. And David writes that we can travel anywhere within the knowledge of this system, because this is all they knew. This is all they could see. This is all they could picture. And so David says, you know, in the skies, you're, here. you're up here. In the depths, you are there. And from the, the, the land over here to the sun over there, you are everywhere, God. 
And David knows that at every point in creation, God is in it, holding and guiding David towards himself. And I love it as Paul writes, as he writes to the Ephesians, he's praying for the Ephesians, he's praying to God that God would just allow these Ephesian people to learn just how great and how magnificent he is. Not Paul, but God. And he prays this prayer, and we pick up in somewhere in the middle of it, at verse 17 of 3. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, that you may have the strength to comprehend with the saints with what is the breadth and length, that's that horizontal kind of scope of the land, and the height and the depth, that's that vertical scope of the land, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So again, as we heard from Pastor Eric last week, that we're to read Jesus Christ into the Psalms, and we can do that now with the help of the Apostle Paul. As we see the greater picture of what Christ's love is and how it surpasses all of our knowledge, how it surpasses all of our understanding, and at all points to the greatness of our God. Monique, I wonder if you could just back up and put that, that, that other picture back up. Are you able to do that? There we go. So think again about our understanding now of the universe compared to David's understanding of the universe. I wanted to do a, a bit of a graphic representation here, but I didn't want to figure that out at 9.30 this morning. I wanted to have this picture kind of zoom, zoom way out and give us the whole scope of what we understand the universe to be now. Think about it. This is all what David understands, and we understand even the earth to be so much larger than just this little piece of land floating in the middle of nowhere. We understand it to be so much, so much greater. We are earth within this massive solar system, a solar system massively placed within the Milky Way galaxy. Now, the Milky Way galaxy can be measured at 100,000 light years. And you have any clue what a light year is? Takes the sun, light from the sun to the earth, eight minutes to get here. And then to measure the scope of space, they measure it how much time it takes the sun's light to get through everywhere else. I don't want to go too much farther down that road, but just imagine they have to measure the size of space by measuring how fast light travels within it. Not in meters, not in kilometers, not in miles, but in light years. It's incredibly large, my friends. And that's just our galaxy. So then I started thinking about the millions of galaxies and the millions of solar systems and all the greatness of our universe with this picture being crazily zoomed out. And I take David's words here and Paul's words and understand just how much more that height goes and just how much more that breadth goes. And it's incredible to picture just the vastness, the incredible vastness of God's understanding of where we exist. Mind-numbing. But as we're sitting there in that mind, you can advance now, Monique. Um, but as, as, we, as we exist in that mind-numbingly strong knowledge of that universe and how God holds the entire entirety of it all, David switches metaphors. He then writes about the darkness and the light, which is an incredible theme to track through all of Scripture, as darkness and light generally depicts the state of our spiritual awareness. And in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But then in John 12, he then writes, the light is amongst you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. So we get this picture that being in Christ is being in the light. And while not living in Christ is, well, living in the darkness. So humanly speaking, as we speak about darkness, it's overwhelming. 
and we're blind to where we're going and we need flashlights. We need other modes of light to uh, get through those dark spaces. But as David writes, he recognizes that God is even present within that, those dark places. And I invite you to think about your own spiritual journey, your own spiritual state. Perhaps before you knew who God was. In that state, God was there. In that state already, before you knew who God was, God was already working in your life, pulling you towards himself. Perhaps without you even fully knowing and being aware of just what God was up to. But in a different way to think about this darkness and light imagery, maybe you're in one of those dark places right now where God feels at a, such a great distance away from you. He might, be, he might feel as though he's in the next galaxy, the next solar system, or at the other far reaches of the universe and not even near you. You might be in those places where you're, you're just plagued with doubts, you're plagued with concerns, you're plagued with all these kinds of fears, and you wonder God's hand, how can he even hold this? But as David writes, he, he tells us that even in those places, the Lord God is near, and he knows your plights, he knows your worries, he knows your concerns, and he knows your fears. I even put it this way, he's sitting right beside you, and he's present. And so when we pray through our doubts, we need to know that God is always at work in your life. That God is always at work in your life. As he's sitting there present right beside you, he's present with you, always working on you. And so at verse 13, David continues on in his, his exploration of just who God is. And then he writes perhaps the most familiar portion of this text, where, where he writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you, for I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. In the late 1890s, Orville and Wilbur Wright were growing in their fascination with flight. I imagine that as they saw the birds fly overhead, that they were just curious, what makes birds fly? And they probably dreamt that they could do much of the same thing. And so they built kites, they built little model planes, and they tried to do their best to learn about how this flight worked. But then one really neat day, December 17, 1903, they took their first plane called the Wright Flyer, and they flew it for its first time. Here's even a picture of it. It's pretty neat. After a few failures, a few successful attempts, they went down in history as the first people to fly. But this plane, as I read these words, were wonderfully made. I thought about, for some reason, I thought about this plane and how wonderfully it was made. The attention to detail that it received. Handcrafted propellers, the lightweight, specifically designed engine because they, they couldn't find another engine anywhere that was light enough and strong enough to do this particular job. Every element of its wood frame was, was put through the ringer of thought and precision and, and practice and testing in order to put together what this model looked like. And so they put this thing together on December 17th. They arrived at Kitty Hawk Field and they put the plane in the middle field and they just left it in the field to see what it would do. They didn't just leave it in the, in the middle of the field, but like, well, go fly. They didn't go find some reporter because they had a whole team of reporters that were following them around. They didn't just go grab one of these reporters and stick them into the cockpit and push the controls and let it go. No, they wanted to experience it themselves. And so Orville and Wilbur, they literally flipped a coin to see who could go because they both wanted to do it. And this coin flipped and landed and heads up. And Wil I believe it was Orville who got to go first. And Wilbur's there on the side just being all jealous and being all concerned. He's like, I wanted to be there. I wanted to experience that. I wanted to go in there. I want to be the one to take it further, take it higher, and take it longer. I think we know where the story of flight has got, where it's brought us to this very modern day. 
So I was thinking about this. If these two men could put such attention into this single project, think about what God would and will do with the billions and billions of little projects that bear his image to a world who does not yet know him. You see, what the Lord has set in motion, he's going to keep in motion. God is always at work in your life. And God didn't just make you and I to set us free into the world to go figure out life on our own. He just didn't go be like, oh, there you go. I'm just, go nuts. You can go over here. He didn't do that. He also didn't go place control over us with some other random being and said, hey, you go have fun with them. No, he committed himself to his creations. And he saw all that he has made and was pleased with it. And he said, I'm going to walk alongside life with you. And David writes in verse 14, Wonderful are all your works. My soul knows it very well. And if I was to show you my Bible, I would show you something that um, I've got there. In the, in the, in the, there, it's just two word, big words written. Oops, that's the wrong color. I've got these words written. Do I? Wonderful are all your works. My soul knows it very well. Do I? Do I really know like, this is how God works? Do I really feel that the Lord has committed to walking alongside me in all of my ways? Do I really feel that the Lord continues to hold me in his hand? Well, I'm not so sure I always do. And that's because there's a difference between uh, spiritually thinking about this and intellectually knowing the difference. There's a difference between what our souls believe and what our hearts and our minds actually do. You see, we're wired with a soul to know God. I think that's our design. And God uses that method to always pull us towards himself, always pulling us towards himself. But with our hearts and our minds, I think we live a little bit differently. Sin has affected us through and through. And so as our souls are drawn towards the Lord, our hearts and our minds are drawn towards the world that we are in. We're plagued then with doubts and concerns and fears because we feel like we never measure up to the world that we're in. And God knew this about us as he, as he walks alongside us. He knew that we we're going to have all kinds of distractions in this life. And so he designed for us communities to help us, to encourage us, to have us feed with one another within. From our immediate and extended families to our circles of friends to our faith communities and to our small groups, our life groups, our youth groups, whatever it is. Because this life that we are in and looking for God's hand within it, it takes work and it takes intentionality because we can't figure those things all out completely on our own. So in June, I went on this really cool trip with my oldest daughter, Tiana. There's us on the boat in uh, the SALT trip in her grade 8 class. And we got to go through the Victoria Islands down there. It was a super fun time. So it's a tall ship, um, 130 some odd feet long. It's a really cool boat. If you ever get that experience to go, please go. It's a fantastic thing. But I remember one morning when after I woke up and I was, I, my shift, my, my watch group wasn't on. So I sat near the back of the boat and I just watched. I watched the world go by, I watched the islands go by, I watched the wind in the sails, and I watched the crew all do their work. And I thought it was fascinating as I sat there. But at the helm, at the back of the boat, which is actually just kind of right back here, the big steering wheel sat three people. Not just one at the steering wheel, but three. The first person was a crew member that had their hand always on the helm. Beside that person, 
uh, at the helm was another member of the crew that was the watch officer. The watch officer was in charge of all the happenings and all the things happening on the boat at the particular time. That beside the watch officer stood the captain. The captain was keep an eye on the charts, keep an eye on the weather, keep an eye on all the other things going about, making sure that this boat would travel forward safely. And as I watched this, I recognized that these weren't the only three that were working together to make sure this boat stayed afloat and went forward. On the front of the ship, on the bow, there's two more people, part of the crew, who are watching for what was ever in the distance, watching for the obstacles, watching for all the things in the, in, uh, coming up. Two more people sat on the stern of the ship, looking, looking backwards. What's, what's coming up from behind? Where are some potential dangers? Is there a man overboard? We have to point them out. There was another person that sat on the, on the deck, always near the radio, to listen for the weather reports, to listen for any other concerns that the traffic control people were trying to convey to us. This isn't yet thinking about the people who were uh, below deck cooking the food and preparing the meals, the ones who were up even earlier at the crack of dawn to clean the deck to make sure it was pr proper and ready for the day, or those who were taking care of the engine and the sails, making sure all the things were working properly. All this to say is that we need to surround ourselves with people who see life simultaneously and similarly, as God's work in our lives isn't always super obvious. So we need to lean into our communities in very special and significant ways. We need people in front of us, people at our bow, who are in front of us helping us point the way. One of the things that the people on the bow had to do, they had to point out logs. There's a danger coming because the captain couldn't see it from his vantage point. There's people at the bow, at the, uh, sorry, at the stern, looking out for upcoming dangers. We need those people in our lives to help us identify these things that are coming up from behind us. We need our captain with the charts right beside us. And what's fascinating as I think about this metaphor of what people do and how people are functioning, in one way we're going to be used by God to point out his work to others. In one way we're going to be used by God to point out his work to others in our lives. Think about how you can be used by God to dispel the doubts of another. Someone says, I'm just not very good at my job. Well, you could come in and be like, well, I've seen you do this. I've seen you do that. And I've seen you do this. And it's amazing. You are actually good at your job. Well, I didn't believe that about myself. Offering an encouraging word, oh, it can go so far. Listening to another's plight and listening to another's frustration can be a life changer. Simply agreeing with another person that life is difficult can be so powerful. And you can be that person in someone else's life. But in another way, we might just be the ones to listen to those words that someone else has come to tell us, that has been sent from the Lord for us to receive instruction, for us to receive some sort of encouragement. So think about how God is using other people in your life to dispel your own doubts. But we can be so clouded by our doubts that we don't trust that messenger, that we don't even trust the message. And that's the challenge that I want to present to you also today. That offering encouragement is one thing, but humbly receiving it is an entirely different ballgame, isn't it? It can be especially difficult, especially if we don't believe the messenger or trust that person that's delivering it. But choosing to recognize God's voice in your life, it needs to be a thing for us. And choosing to accept God's voice in your life means that you might have to accept that his voice sounds like your friend, sounds like your spouse. His voice might sound like a pastor, an elder, a care team leader, a life group leader. It might even sound like a child of yours. So finally, when praying through our doubts, know that God's work is never done. As we talked earlier that um, we, we have still these broken lives, God's work is never done. So up until now, David has been proclaiming the greatness of our God and just how wonderful and amazing he is. 
His attention through the psalm has been solely on God and God's activities. But at verse 23 here, David's tone, it changes. You can almost imagine his posture take a totally different look. He's, I, I, I kind of, as I see him writing this, I see him kind of kneeling down. I see his head bowed low. I see his eyes quenched shut. So I'm going to invite us to do that. Not that you have to get down to your knees, but just bow your heads, close your eyes, and listen to David praying this final portion of this prayer. And he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, O God, and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me, O God, in the way of everlasting. David recognizes that God's work is never done. David's been elevating God to this incredible place of honor and worship and glory, but recognizes that the same God who has all this honor, worship, and glory is the same God who knows him intimately well, but it's the same God who works alongside him every single day of his life. So I mentioned earlier that we still have these rough edges. As we live our Christian lives, we live into that process of sanctification where God is making us more and more like himself because that work is never done. But I feel it starts with us having to admit this. We have to recognize that God is, in fact, never done with us. I've always held this image in my mind of how that kind of looks and how that kind of shapes. As there's this big, huge, celestial-sized hand coming down from above. I wish I had bigger hands for this in, that, in this story, but I don't. But he grabs this big hand, comes and grabs onto mine. And it's this hand of God that's this almighty, it's powerful, it's never letting go. It's the strongest grip I'll ever experience. And I could fight it. I could try to get out of it but I can't because his hand is just so powerful, it's so big, it's so mighty, and it's always pulling myself towards who he is. But as I realize that I'm still sinful, that I still have a few broken edges, that I'm not perfect, that I still have some work to be done, I need to admit that. I need to recognize those things. And as I do those things, I kind of start seeing my hand slowly grasp onto the hand that is already holding me. I need to grasp back onto that hand that is already holding me. And I want you to keep that picture in your mind of what that looks like, what that feels like. As you're being held closely and firmly with a grip that's never going to let you go, you can fight it. You can say, I don't want that, God. Well, God's like, I got you. You can say, I want to run from that. God's like, well, I got you. You can't get out of that grip. But we need to admit those things. Lord, I do have doubts. Lord, I do have concerns. Lord, this life that you've given me is hard. I don't like that diagnosis. That relationship falling apart is wrecking me. My kids, Lord God, I can't take them. I can't, sorry. My parents might be saying that. But recognize that that hand is always there holding you. And we need to grasp back hold of the hand that's holding us. But remember also identified earlier that we don't often do much to free ourselves from that doubt. We don't often do much of that hard work to free ourselves from those moments in our lives because they've come a part of us. We don't know what to do. So the big challenge today is to pray through it, of course. But perhaps that's, this is also the day that starts more of that work that we need to get done. And we start seeing what the Lord has done for us and we start seeing just how much he does in fact hold us. Then we start admitting that we need this help that we need this work. So we grab hold of the arm that's already holding us. So I want to leave you with a final challenge. 
I was talking to a friend of ours earlier this week who we were talking about this message and she shared with me uh, this very same challenge that she had heard from a friend. I thought it would be great to share with you all today. So if you struggle with doubt, if you have all kinds of worries and all kinds of anxieties in what your life looks like going forward, I want to invite you to pray yourself and to insert yourself into this text. It may sound a little awkward at first, but I think it's going to be effective for you. Oh Lord, you have searched Adam. And you know Adam. You know when Adam sits down. And you know when Adam rises up. You discern out Adam's path and Adam's lying down. You are acquainted with all of Adam's ways. I think as you do this, you start seeing just how all the billions and billions of little projects that are made in God's image, how he holds on to them, but also that he holds on to you. But let's say you have others in your life, your, your, your children, your friends, maybe even a spouse who are going through hard times, and, and you don't know how to, how to pray for them. You don't know how to hold them up to God the Father. Well, I'm going to invite you to do the same thing. Oh, Lord, you have searched John. You know Jim, oh God. You know when Sally sits down. You know when Jen rises up. Oh, God, you know your people. Oh, God, you know your children through and through. Help me be a one to walk alongside them. Give me the words, O oh God, to speak life, to speak graciousness, to speak your encouragement to all of the people, Lord, that you have placed me within. And what this challenge is about is discovering more intimately God's activity in our lives. It's about discovering what he is already doing. And as we do so, we just might begin to see all of those doubts decrease. We might just begin to see our confidence and assurance in him increase. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our Summer Psalms mini-series, where we're learning about how to pray through the difficult seasons of life. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.